Score, the podcast, is presented by Spitfire Audio. Score, the podcast. The only show taking you inside the studios of the world's most celebrated composers and musical storytellers. I'm Kenny Holmes. He's Robert Kraft. Yes, I am. Another week, another great guest on Score the Podcast. Another birthday. I'm I'm under the impression from reading, you know, seeing it on TMZ and all the Twitter <laughs> feeds. Our host, Kenny Holmes, turned twenty one this week. Twenty one, yes. Twenty one. And uh, Kenny, did you do anything special for your birthday? I did. I went and saw, I think, one of your favorite bands, Steely Dan, oh, in Las Vegas. Of course, they're my favorite band. And they're it, always killer and great players, always. Yeah, well, the original band is obviously, it was a compilation band of big-time studio musicians. Yeah. Um, but now they tour. It's still Donald Fagan, the lead singer, and then he plays piano as well. Um, but it, yeah, it was just like an all-star lineup. Keith Carlock, who's Incredible. like an unbelievable drummer. Yeah. Uh, Freddie, Freddie Washington. Freddie's in the band. Freddie yeah. Washington, the bassist. Yeah. Uh, Jim Beard on the keyboards, yeah. who's a Grammy winning. And from Robert Kraft and the Ivory Coast, may I give a shout out to John Harrington on guitar, yeah. who uh, we used to call Shivers. And um, it was so It was great. It was really great. And uh, thank you to my girlfriend for the... The gift. Nice. We had a good time. What a birthday party. And now we're back uh, for another big week. And our guest this week is an Oscar-winning editor. Um, he's the only guy in Hollywood that's playing or wearing both of these hats, I should say, where he's an editor and composer. Uh, John Ottman, who you know from uh, the you know most recently Bohemian Rhapsody, he edited that film and is credited for saving the film essentially because there was a director change in the middle of the film in post and um it was very public that it was kind of a mess and they cleaned up in the uh, award season and i think he even we can ask him about this i'm not sure he even ended up writing a lot of original music he got the editing award but I, no they didn't they they ended up not doing an original mostly, score at all i think yeah, yeah most of the queen tracks so it'll be interesting of course I've had a lot of opportunity to work with Maestro Ottman in the past, and I'd love to ask him his memories of some of the pictures we did together, even co-writing a song once Yes, for one of the movies. I, you sent me the clip. It's going to be fun. It's a little embarrassing, but <laughs> I stand by my work. Um, and we're also going to ask him about the uh, controversial viral video that I'm sure everyone's seen at least a couple of times. It was seen millions of times uh breaking apart or picking apart i guess his his edit on the patio scene oh can't wait to hear his thoughts on that one yeah so we'll ask him about that and much more and the usual suspects a lot of his his big films uh with director brian singer and and uh, a lot of his other works um but let's get to uh some topics uh i did see that ramin javadi put out as as we're wrapping up game of thrones sadly um they're bringing the tour back for the live concert, which I got a chance to see last year in Denver, and if you if it comes near you anywhere, if I mean if you have the means to go, you should go because it's it's not just a concert; it's immersive. There's fire, there's fake snow. The uh, musicians are dressed up. It's really cool, and I don't want to spoil it, but there there's even people suspended above the crowd at times playing instruments. I mean, it's really like nothing you've ever seen in a concert before. I have to think that the incredible 
audience for Game of Thrones who will be jonesing at that point for anything to do with it yeah. will fill these stadiums. I mean, and the tour is massive. It's New York, Dallas, Tampa, Washington, D.C., uh, San Francisco, they'll be in L.A. Yeah, um, so and, uh, among a lot of other cities. There's, there's like 20 or something yep. cities on there. And, Should um, be amazing. And it, Ramin's just a great composer and musician, so I'm sure the music will be And fantastic. not only do they play, like if you went to the Hans Zimmer concert, it was just the music and like some visual effects on the wall. But with Ramin's show, there is actual scenes of Game of Thrones that they play to picture um, so you really get uh-huh. brought back to those moments and and the excitement and it's it's really cool. You should definitely check it out if you can. Um, that's I think later this summer, but yeah. he just put the dates out on uh, his social media. But we'll we tweeted out the link, I believe. It's a big week this week with uh, in the film business because the Cannes Film Festival, the annual roundup of all the new pictures that are hitting the market, uh, opens May fourteenth uh, in in the sunny south of France and. Um, a lot of interesting movies coming up, and also wonderful jewelry this week for all of you who follow it. It's Alejandro Inarratu, the great Mexican director, is heading it with Elle Fanning, the, the actress, is on the uh, he jury. He did The Revenant, right? Yeah, he did, and he's a really interesting director. Um, so that should be great, and there's some hot movies at Cannes that people are looking at, a couple Black Beauty with Kate Winslet and the new young, beautiful star Mackenzie Foy. There's also a a buddy comedy with Chris Hemsworth and uh, Tiffany Haddish. Oh, she's funny, yeah. yeah, Called Down Undercover. There are a lot of new ones coming up. So, Have you been to Cannes? I have been to Cannes. I actually went to Cannes. I've been a couple times. The most memorable trip to Cannes was when Moulin Rouge opened and Mm. uh, the whole crew that worked on the film we all went over stayed in the big fancy hotel and i remember walking up the steps of the palais which is where the films are screened and there were can can dancers one on every step greeting you as you walked in they showed the film the french hated it which was kind of funny because you think moulin rouge this would be for them and they sat silent oh no a couple smatterings of applause in the room. Was but this the premiere? Premiere of Moulin oh, so is that did, in France. Was that uh, was that a little like of a struggle it for was, the filmmakers yes, to watch that? Yes, it was that? scary to see that the French rejected it. Needless to say, that was the audience, only audience worldwide that rejected the film because it was a huge hit. But it was showing a film in their own backyard and they had, you know, they were very kind of snooty about it. However, the most memorable part of that premiere on the beach, after the screening, Fat Boy Slim was the DJ. Nice. And the party went till dawn. And uh, Was Christopher Walken dancing on the uh, every, beach with oh, him? Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> Nicole Kidman was dancing on the beach. And Kenny, since you just turned 21, I have to be very delicate about what I can share. <laughs> but when you get a little older, hmm. I can tell you what happened at that party. Okay. We'll save it. Uh, there's also some movies coming out in theaters this weekend. Of course, this past weekend, it was Avengers Endgame again. Still on crushing top. It. But Detective Pikachu had a good second place 58 showing. 58 mil. Yeah. That's nice. So that, I'm sure they're pleased with that when they're and up our against... friend uh, Henry Jackman scoring a movie and good for him. And the music is definitely... Feels like a little Stranger Things crossover, like he said. There's, it's it's fun. I I popped into it on on uh, Apple Music and listened oh, to it. Oh, that's nice. Bit. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah, a um, couple big ones. I think the one that's going to try and make a dent is the John Wick series number yeah, three, scored by Tyler Bates. Yep, 
um, take who was on last that. season. There's also a, a movie coming up which unfortunately won't get as much attention as it should because it's just an important cultural entry into our, our conversation these days and something that I feel it's important essential for for all fans of both music and animals to see uh the very moving sequel you're really building this up i'm excited to hear what it is no it's important i think you should make time to see sean the sheep farmageddon pretty fresh (laughs) (laughs) because uh you know those guys at aardman are just about the most wonderful sweet movie makers they do such great stuff and uh listen it's the first sequel that's come out of Ardman, so we go back to mossy bottom farm with sean the sheep i mean how can you miss this <laughs> i might miss it uh, just... i i actually i'm gonna be in line friday at noon uh <laughs> because i'm gonna find you in line and take that picture because sean the sheep is one of my heroes so who's who's in we got to do it Well, uh, again, coming up after the break, we have John Ottman, Oscar-winning editor and award-winning composer. Again, wears both hats. I know that there's a lot of John Ottman music fans, but um, being able to edit and score the same picture. And we get to ask the question, which is on a lot of listeners' minds, how do you do both? John Ottman is next. Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. What about strange lands and escape from the everyday? It's brilliant, George. Before anyone knew them by name. Who's a good boy, Indiana? 400 grand? Let me explain it. George, that's our money. Blockbuster. Following the spectacular failures. Sir, Sir, are you all right? And the unexpected triumphs. Can you believe it? I told you, George. I told you. A six-part immersive audio series. Blockbuster. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other platforms. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, this is Tom, Junkie XL. You're listening to Score, the podcast. And now let's go back to the show. Welcome back. We are here with Oscar-winning editor and award-winning composer. He does all kinds of things. John Ottman joining the show. Think, hey, John. You know, there's a word in Hollywood. They say hyphenate. I think next to the word hyphenate or multi-hyphenate, you have John Ottman's picture. Full page. Oh, I like the clapping. Because you do both. <laughs> and, of course, John, you and I have had the great good fortune of working together. So I've seen up close and personal how you do both uh, activities. And I was actually looking last night to see, had we worked on pictures that you had done one or the other. Um, I need to go back and look because I know that. Yeah, um, quite a number. Or yeah, just as composer. Just I, as I think, composer. Um, Fantastic Four was the first one uh, that was just scoring the film. Just scoring the film. Yeah. I don't even remember who the editor was, but I do remember um, um, Bill um, Hoy. I think. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I I remember, um, and I'm getting way ahead of of a question I wanted to ask, but I once said, you know, how can you possibly do both? gigs and you said that the advantage of course was 
that in editing the film and in writing the music for the film, you had a better sense than the editor or the composer independently of where rhythms would occur and swells that would go into an edit. And I thought, that makes too much sense. They're the same guy. So you can really build sequences. Yeah. I mean, having said that, I, I, it, people are usually surprised that um, I don't temp when it, with any music when I'm cutting the film. It's completely dry. That was the question I was going to ask you. Yeah, actually. because I, cause there's many reasons for this. As a filmmaker, I... I, I well, when I'm doing both tasks, I could I just couldn't afford to have a problem film down the down the road because I was scoring the film also, and that's a nightmare to manage the film and be scoring it la la la. So it was I was in, it was my best interest to always a- anticipate every freaking problem that could possibly happen. And one of the things I found that if I uh, cut a scene and put temp music in right away, it sells the scene, which you want to desperately do, but you are inevitably covering up some problem that you're not aware the scene has. You're fooling yourself. So the, what happens is then um, way down the line, we discover those problems and we realize the scene really wasn't working. And now it's now I'm screwed because I, I'm, I'm trying to score the film and I have a problem. So um, can, I always, you, can you real quick explain from your perspective what temp is for oh, someone in, that doesn't know? Yeah, what it is. when you put in temporary music uh, as you're making the film, um, most people will, when they cut a scene, will put in the, temp, the temporary music right away. It's music that's from other soundtracks and so forth that that will give that that. Uh, Hopefully, is the flavor that the film is ultimately going to have, scoring-wise. I mean, sometimes it's not. Sometimes an editor will put in something that's completely wrong, mm. but everyone thinks it's amazing because they saw suddenly saw a scene with music, and and then and, and it makes the scene flow or or it speeds the scene up so everyone immediately figures well that must be the music we need which of course sometimes is not what you should wish you should have at all but um but basically it also makes the composer's job harder right and we get in the whole subject of i'm sure it's been covered a million times on these shows temp love and so forth yeah um uh lore composers come in and basically ask to rip off the score which may not even be the right thing for the film <laughs> and sometimes it takes a composer who has a more of an opinion and more uh, clout to say Hey guys, you know, I think this is the wrong approach, blah, blah, blah. Here's the reason we should do X, Y, and Z. And that's, that will always garner a better score. But, um, but going back to, so I, I will have a two, two and a half hour cut with nothing. And to me, if I'm entertained watching a film dry, then the film is working. Mm-hmm. I'm not, um, you know, uh, uh, all the problems are being confronted. And, uh, and then just the temp- temporary music that I put in now is going to be, is going to have a flow to it, not going to be hacked up like a Cuisinart. Cause what happens is if you put music in as you're cutting, by the time you're done with the two hour, uh, first cut and all the changes you've made, and then down the road, you know, the, it becomes mincemeat. The, the, the temp score suddenly has no flow or thematic ideas that, 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 that come to fruition or you plant seeds here and so forth. So, um, my temp scores are usually really well laid out and they're so good. I'm absolutely intimidated by them. Do, they u- so, do you use your own music? Um, only in, in a few cases, um, but I, I try because I have a dissociation with what the music was used for. But mm. sometimes I, I alienate my, I, I can alienate myself from that. But I will doing the temp score. I'll do like five, six tracks of music to make a new cue that really doesn't exist oh, that's anyway. Nice. So I'll take like string sustains from from uh, a score and then pitch it in some other way and sustain it over another cue of some of some rhythmic you know idea from another score and so if i rip that off i'm really not ripping off anything that really existed so i feel less guilty if i am ripping off that type of thing that i've created um 
Yeah, but but nevertheless, uh, and the big mind fuck, if we can say that. I think you can say that. Okay. Yeah, we'll have to. We will make a declaration on this episode. For, <laughs> for me, is when we are test screening the film, and so I was going to say, you said you don't put temp music in, but you, which is often used to sell the film. No, so but you, we do at that by that point. Right. When, okay. when I get my uh, cut together, then I temp it all together. I take, yep. I take two weeks and temp the whole thing. So, because we want to temp it before showing the studio and so forth. So, when we test it, of course, I'm also writing the score. And so, what will happen is I'll be in my studio. I finally have broken myself from the temp score. I'm in my own zone, doing my own thing. And then we have a test screening. So, then I come and watch the film with a temp score. And my mind just explodes like, well, I start feeling like, well, I didn't do that little glockenspiel thing there. I I didn't do that little pizza. Oh, my God. And so, you start doubting everything you're doing. So, um, in the early days, when you have less confidence, in your abilities, you it, it, it would freak me out, and um, I literally have to take an aspirin because I'd have a headache coming out of the test screenings, and so confused about what I should do. You know, I thought you were going to say you go to a test screening, you know what you should do, you know what the new music is you're writing, and some boneheaded executive of which I may have been at one point, <laughs> um, and maybe again, comes and says, you know that scene where the guy jumps off the building? Is it possible we could put? You know, and the suggestion is always, you know, surf music there oh, or, right. uh, you know, an accordion. And you think, ah, I have a plan. <laughs> well, if there's a plan, it's well explained. I think yeah. that that's all it takes is the composer explain. Uh, composers, uh, any, anyone, editor, composer, everyone shouldn't have an agenda based upon the hard work they did or the cool thing they wrote. Their, their agenda should be their point of view of how it makes the scene better and how it brings out a character idea or some subtext you know and so if and if that wasn't what the director was looking for then the director can say oh actually i think this scene should be about guilt and not whatever and then suddenly oh okay composer gets it so i think if everyone's communicated on that level um then if an agenda has a dis- if, if if a composer has a disagreement then at least it's based upon um you know, uh, a creative uh, idea as opposed to an agenda like, I wrote this cute and it sounds cool and I want, <laughs> you know, and how, how can you possibly not like this piece of music? You know, that, that's the wrong way because as you know, there's, there's a, there, as a filmmaker, there's, there's many ways to skin a cat and there's many different points of view on a scene. And I tell young composers, you know, that you may see it one way, but there is another way to see it, you know. I saw last night, actually, there was a post about some book that everyone knows that I've never heard of, which had the 20 rules for composers and be careful of and one of them is there's another way to see the scene don't yeah. get locked into yours yeah. have but, you ever been in a situation where um you're hired for both editor and composer and the director likes one of the jobs you're doing and doesn't like the other job and it's uncomfortable uh no only because i as you know i only edit films under gunpoint you know it's a it's ah. a blackmail thing that brian singer would basically say you're you're never going to score a film for me unless you're the editor so that's so uh, hmm. i was always part of the equation of doing both and so um I I would guilt him into liking what the hell I'm going to write. <laughs> it's like, you know, how dare you stick me in the editing room for a year or two just to get a to get to write a score. And so, uh, but the thing is, it's like um, by the time we were at the scoring phase, again, I have I would have tempted to uh. to such a terrific degree that he knew exactly pretty much the kind of score I was going to write. Yep. And Brian, um, as much as I will complain or have complained about, you know, every person dr- complains about certain aspects of their director, the one thing I did like is he came from the old school like I did. So if I wrote um, uh, a, a mock-up, he doesn't care how great it's going to sound. All he cared about is is 
is the tone, the feeling. Oh, good. And that's it. And so it was always great when I scored uh, things with him versus some newer directors who they have to hear everything like it's it's completely utterly realized because they don't they don't come from that old the old days where you're simply conveying um, you know the attitude and and the feeling and and what it's about you know yeah. let's we, let's go back to how this all started so what came first the chicken or the egg what came first the composer or the editor how what what path were you taking and then what led you to the other one to do kind of both in tandem well, everyone kind of knows the story but i'll um the uh i guess the, the editing came first only because it was a byproduct of making movies which is mm. I, I did since grade school mm. um and so then i went to usc i took a directing course and um uh everyone would watch my scenes and comment how well put together they were and how they flowed. And so then um, uh, you can cut down this story. It's long. I'll try to I make actually it don't know it, but I, oh, okay. I am wondering. So, so I hope you t- were you musical simultaneously? Oh, well, I played the clarinet in, uh, okay. you know, grade school yeah. and marching band, blah, blah, blah. So I yeah. used to actually write music out with a pencil on, on staff and so forth. Hmm. But I, there was um, going way back. There was a crossroads as you always have in your life at high school. And I could take, um, I could take a filmmaking course or, continue with um with a, a music course and i could only do one or the other and, and so i took the the i took the filmmaking course because i was told that you have to really know a lot of math and fractions to do music yeah. so i said screw that i'm gonna go of course start making <laughs> movies and right. so um so then i i got kind of bypassed or uh, tr- uh what's it called not bypassed um Sidetrack. Sidetrack. There you I go. I like that. Thanks. That was the word I meant. Uh, into making films. And so then when I went to USC, to make a long story short, I was, I was uh, making films. And then uh, a guy in my directing course was making a thesis project. And Brian Singer was a PA on that film. Hmm. And um, the film wasn't really working when they got when he put it together. So um, they took it apart. And then the director asked if I would reconstruct it. So I kind of retold it. Um, from the point of view of this uh, old woman recalling her experience as a little girl because it was a period piece, fortunately. Anyway, I put the whole thing together, and Brian sort of had a bird's-eye view about what I did to the film because he was on it from the very beginning. So then we did a very short 20-minute kind of diner-esque film together. Um, he asked me to edit that. He wanted to act in it, which hmm. was a mistake because then he was terrified, so he'd sit there frozen, so we had to get him drunk. And then, um, <laughs> so then I ended up co directing it, and um, he graciously gave me the credit. And then from that, we put together a low budget mo- movie called Public Access, right. which no one saw, but it was a feature film that won the Sundance Film Festival. So, and, and, um, so the music thing, um, I'd been doing the music as a hobby, uh, rescoring my friend's student films and so forth, and doing like, quick set lock company training videos and all it was all this feel good you know and brian would say it's all this gay stuff you write (laughs) and so when uh on public access which is about this very dark sinister character when the composer dropped out in the 11th hour and we had a sundance deadline i said well you know i i can write the score and he says yeah all you do is all that feel good stuff and i go no no no, i can do dark and sinister you know (laughs) so the joke of it of course is that was successful um and um uh, and then when we put suspects together. I said, "Well, I just want to write the score." And he says, "Hell no, you're never gonna uh, d- just do one." So that's what that's how it happened. And the irony is, I got pin- pigeonholed then as the dark, sinister composer of guy. That's what happened. <laughs> that's what Hollywood loves is <laughs> put you in a box. Right, right. So um, I mean, even though Suspects was not necessarily a dark and sinister score, um, it had elements of that. But still, I th- it still fit in that pocket for people, you know. And then from there, I I did a lot of um. 
uh, you know, uh, darker films. It I seems mean, like there's there there would be more people doing what you do, d- doing both the editing and the no, composing. Are, are, are you the only one? Well, I I, I think um, you know a couple of people have done it here and there, but it's it's a, I mean, editing a film is already a horrible lifestyle, and then to put on top of that film scoring an entire picture and managing the whole thing is just um you know i i was i I got away with it because i was young and um you don't care if you're basically your life's passed you by because you're young and you don't really realize it but when you start getting older you're like what the fuck am i doing you know so after apocalypse i told brian i can no longer i lost like 24 pounds in, in a bad way because um you know that was a monster of a film as as was days of future past and doing all that um and it's not just you know, I'm, it, it, people don't realize that the editing of the picture never stops. You have your test screenings, you have your ADR and your actors. You have, and pictures never lock. Never locked. You have thousands of visual effects shots. And you have all the, are the um, uh, diplomatic conversations with the studio and all of that angst. Uh, and then in the middle of that, I'm writing 120 minutes of music. So, it's in- inconceivable. Yeah, and I was telling Robert how my fingers would just bleed uh, the whole time because I would just chew my skin off my fingers. So I was like, hey, I cannot do this again. So after Apocalypse, I said, that's it. I will score the films. I will never be the filmmaker again. I can't. So, um, But then, of course, Bohemian Rhapsody happens. I'm like, how do you fucking say no to that? <laughs> so, um, And I figured if I were to score the film, which was the original idea, I wouldn't be writing much of a much score anyway. So... Um, and even though it was going back to editing jail, I couldn't say no to that because it's such, a, such an amazing. Was movie. that part of the initial deal with the, with Brian? Once it's always again, the, the you're going to be editor. And I'm going to be editor, composer, and sometimes producer because I, I sort of manage the whole thing. But this one, um, I was not a producer on it. I was just basically an editor and a composer. I was, or, or was supposed to be. Composer. There is a certain irony that um, you aimed for editor, but the way I knew you was. John Ottman composer. Yeah, and, and that's, the way Hollywood. That's sort my of first love. I mean, yeah. like I said, uh, you know, uh, the editing is what I did to score the film. But um, uh, but Bohemian Rhapsody just was something I couldn't pass up as a filmmaker. I just couldn't do it. Um, and so I said, all right. I mean, it's going to be a year of my life. But then I figured, well, it is ironic because I I knew going in it was basically going to be an editing job. You know. Um, and of course, my friends joke that I, I went won the Oscar for editing the thing that I regret always doing. You know? So <laughs> it is ironic, but um, I'll it's, never uh, do it again. Yeah. And the winner is <laughs> yeah. So I mean, it was satisfying in a way because I see it as sort of. I mean, never say never. I may edit a film someday, but I felt like it was sort of like a graduation in, in the best possible way. That I wanted happen. to ask how things have changed because when when editing, you know. 20 30 years ago it wasn't digital and and scoring wasn't digital right um things don't uh, now that it's digital things don't lock like ever it seems correct um so how is that is that more helpful that it's digital or is it less helpful or is it a little of both how is it's the how has the world changed for you in that i mean it's a blessing and a curse the technology you know um I mean, I, I would never go back to cutting on a flatbed and a splicer, hmm. but uh, but um, it it made me think in a different way. So I, I, I try to explain this to new editors. Um, and it's probably very similar. Everything's very similar. You can say the same thing to new composers, but um, because you couldn't just slap 
15 versions of a of a scene on the on the screen and see which one is better you had to watch all the footage memorize every frame of it because there's no nothing digital and then you had and so in, in in by doing that you would inevitably preconceive the scene in your head so you had a you had what that scene's going to be in your brain already and then you would go out you'd set out to make that scene mm. and so it, it and so that mindset stayed with me so i always see when i cut a film i see it in that in that way and um i try to, to but it's a discipline now because when you get the footage, you just want to start cutting. And I, some other, a lot of those editors, because of deadlines and the films, the, the, the footage is flying in, they're shooting still, we'll just start cutting. I, I can't do that. I, 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 will, I will have the discipline to sit there and watch every freaking frame before I start cutting one scene. Um, and uh, it's similar to composing, where you know a lot of composers will just get the film and start writing. And like I, I would be lost. What, what, am, I, what, am, I, what am I doing? And so I, I need to sit there. And had the agonizing process of writing the entire overture to the film first. I'm going to write the themes out or the motifs ahead of time, and it's it's agonizing because you got a film you want to you're itching to go score. Uh, you probably have a deadline, and you can, and you and you're but but the time you spend writing that thing out is so uh, invaluable because then when you write the score, you've already written what you're pulling from, and it's like the well from which all the ideas are going to come, and and then out of it will come a more thought out score where you're telling a story, you know where you're going. So to me, that, that, that time spent writing the themes ahead of time um, pays off. I want to ask if that is something that's new in composing and something that you'd think I would know after having been in this world. But I do notice it felt like at the beginning of my experience with film composing, composers were particularly American composers, QE. They would go through Q-Y, you know, QE in that they would go through, score this scene, score this scene, score this scene. And then it became, and I, composers were saying they were going to compose a suite mm-hmm. of the main themes and present that to the director with or without picture mm. and that it would be drawn from that. But I always felt that was something that evolved unless it was going on always and I didn't know. But what you're describing of of having a an overture, yeah. do you feel that that's recent or has that always been the no, case? I think that it's, it's not recent. I think that's more classic way of film scoring. I mean, the overture mm. is not necessarily something that you're going to play for anyone. It's well, exactly. For, it's for yourself. Exactly. Um, but um, having said that, when you see a John Williams uh, movie – uh, he whether the entire theme is ever used in the film or not, he has a thing he's written, and and you see the end titles, and you have this this completely thought out theme that he's written or themes, you know, and um and I I just feel like this I feel it's irresponsible not to do that as well, only because I come from that school. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean there's no right or wrong. I mean, you know, um if 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 the end credits becomes a collage of what was used in the film and you really never didn't ever wrote anything out, fine. But I always feel like there has to be something. So like in Apocalypse, you know, I, I had to write a full on Apocalypse theme. There had to be that for me. Otherwise mm-hmm. I don't know what I'm doing with this character. And that became the end title cue, you know. And, sure. And so um but that's just sort of I it's just everyone works differently. But um, for me, I wouldn't know what I was doing unless I'm coming from all the things I read. Can I around. ask, technically, do you get a theme and then start playing with 
how is it minor and how is it in three and how is it in four? Yeah, well, that's the great thing about writing a theme ahead of time because now you can play with it, you yeah. know. And that's the most brilliant thing about film composing is is when you can suddenly lay a theme over a scene as opposed to you know scoring every little incidental thing happening. And but now the theme is in a minor chord, and that's way more uh, enthralling and effective than just kind of doing the and kind of the hitting the stuff. Thing. Yeah, yeah. Do you um, ever score while you're editing? Like if you see no. a moment and you're like, oh, th- this could be good? No, I never do. I got the hat on, the editor's hat on, because I'm just desperate. Because that's overwhelming, just editing the film. You're, you're, uh, um, y- there's no time to go write something. Um, you got film flying in. They're still shooting. You're, you're on the set. and um, So I will know that um, a sequence is going to be a big musical sequence. So editorially, I probably make it a little fatter and so forth. But what that music's going to be, I don't have any idea. You know, it's like, um, it's like uh, when, uh, in Suspects, when Kaiser Soze, well, I'm sorry, um, Arturo Marquez is shot and you see the blood hitting the porthole and there's a shot that pulls out from the boat and it's this shot that pulls out and pulls out. I just let that play out because I knew I was going to write something Big and operatic there, but I didn't know what the hell it was going to be. You know, I just worried about it and chewed my fingers. Because uh, at some point I had to write something. I just re- went and rewatched that movie this last week. What a great, great movie! If you haven't yeah. seen that movie, it, I think oh, I rented it. It was like classic. four bucks to rent it. It's so <laughs> great. Soze has entered the lexicon. Yeah, yeah. I, I think say it was before a... before we actually take a moment to take a break, I, I just want to we'll let this c- play. Continue on, on yeah. one theme no pun if you ever worked with an editor who you re- as you're just a composer and you you don't have to name names but has there been difficulty yes of, i yeah okay <laughs> no, 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 not that's my question not difficulty personally no i mean just um, in their where the concept I'm, I'm of the watching edit. a car accident happen and i can't it's not my job because i'm the composer to say yeah. anything so um and it it, it, it uh, you know there's a film and i won't talk about it but this is how crazy i'm because it's you i i'm a filmmaker and i'm very passionate and so if i see something like that has good DNA to it, but it's been being ruined. Its potential's being ruined by bad editing. There's one film where I literally went back on the Xanax we were talking about, and even Painkillers because I could not Ooh. sleep at night because I was so beside myself at what was happening. And finally, I found out a way to get him to change stuff. And I would basically make an argument from from a musical point of view. I go, nice. you know, musically, if you know, if if you held on this character here, I could get inside his head more when actually I actually thought he should fucking hold on this character longer. Why is he cutting to the window or whatever, you know? Right. And so I would make those arguments that would it would help the cut. And then with a couple and but but this editor was actually a really, really nice guy. And so he was like, hey, any points of view you have. And so there were a couple things like a chase scene that was nonsensical to me. And I explained to him, I, I think, you know, the goal is to get here and why – and it would be, clear, it'd be clear, clearer if you had the car do this. And he says, oh, sure. And he did that. But, but it made, it made, so it made my life easier as a composer because otherwise you're trying to make sense of something. It doesn't make any sense. So, And now I imagine if you're an editor working with John Ottman, the composer, he walks in the room and it's like um, – Here's Oscar-winning editor yeah, but John. But the thing is, Ackman. I make it clear that that and because I know the I know what an editor is going through, and um, and I always make it clear if I'm just the composer, that's my job. I'm not going to be a backseat driver. I'm here to write a score and make whatever you're doing work. It just happened to be in that circumstance. He was a really he he actually sought out, asked me, nice. hey, you know, um, but um, you just go home and vent to the wall at the end of the night and oh not my God. tell anyone. It's just so hard because I mean, <laughs> in film, if you see that there's no DNA in the film already, and the film's a dog already, okay, you don't care as much. But <laughs> when you see the film 
has such a great potential and it's not being reached because it's not being edited correctly. It's, 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 you know. when, actually, when you say that when it's a dog, do you, when you're editing, are you like, this is a dog? Um, <laughs> do you know? Like, no, how- here's, here's the thing. Uh, not necessarily the film is a dog, but I know, and I've talked about this when I, when I did my editing speech, uh, the ACU when I won, I said, you know, basically, um, we're blessed when we are given a cast that is all cast well. Because it's the worst thing if you have an actor who may be a good actor but is miscast, mm. and then you're polishing a turd for a year or two because there's nothing you can do about. It. There is something you can, you can make it better. You can do ADR. You can you can you edit the actor and so forth. But the dynamic, the potential that had was there, it will never be there. And you always know that as the editor. Um, and I won't mention the films I've been on where I'm like. I'm fucked because this actor is wrong or the dynamic between these two, two actors will never work. Um, and so no matter how much of a great film I can make, it will never be that terrific, as good as it could be because people go to see a film because of the, the characters, you know. Um, it's yeah. just so true. There's yeah. a motion picture I worked on. Of course, the chemistry between the two was so wrong and so obvious from the minute they were on screen next to each other, they would never be a couple on, right. in a million if you years. you can't imagine the two main characters fucking, it's never going to work. Exactly ever. right. And oh, in this true. movie, you wait for them to kiss and you think when they do, that's so wrong. Well, you're like, <laughs> yeah. no. Yeah, but so, it's, yeah. you know, three hours of gritting your teeth. And amazingly enough, the audience knows that right they away. Know right away. Yeah. They know it right away. I don't see these two. By the way, you know, you, come out, you go, isn't she like 10 years old? older than him and how are they the same a couple and, this, and you just yeah mm-hmm. absolutely right you become but, a therapist yeah right yeah. um we're gonna take a quick break and then when we come back we're gonna jump into bohemian rhapsody Bo-rap. the oscar winning film more with john ottman when we return hey score fans it's robert Kraft. we're back to the show in 25 seconds if you like what you're hearing do us a quick favor Rate and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. It just takes a second, and it helps the show grow. Hey, thanks. We're going back to the show right now. And the Oscar goes to Bohemian Rhapsody, John Ottman. This is the first Oscar nomination for John Ottman. Thank you, Michael Keaton, for that announcement. Does that get old? Do you like hearing it still? <laughs> um, it's surreal still, yeah. yeah. I'm like, sometimes I wake up and like, did that happen? You know. Where do you keep uh, your Oscar? But it's satisfying. Um, you know, I, I, was, I meant that when I said my, I want my parents to have it. So when they were about to leave, we were like, well, we can't put it in the luggage because that could get stolen. And it's really heavy. My mom's in a wheelchair, so that would be hard for her to carry. So I still have it in a, on a shelf in, uh, in the little screening room I have at the house. But... Um, they live in Carmel, so when I drive up there, I'll, I, I, guess I really don't want it here. I mean, it's nice, but I want them to have it. You know, who was your competition? Do you remember that? And were the editors that had spent their entire life just editing? And here's a guy who I kind know, of really that asshole. Yeah, but, right. uh, no, but I've been editing for 25 years, yeah, so. of course. But um, uh, yeah, it was um, it was uh, Green Book and uh, and uh, nice. Black, Black Panther and uh, the favorite and some good films. One yeah. other one um, yeah i feel terrible forgetting whoever's it's all right it was all yours and you you really did i know and i think a lot of people know that you did more than edit you really brought that film together 
you yeah, brought it, it to was a unique completion. situation that yeah. most people know. You know, there was uh, no director um, once once we started post, um, or we had a replacement director for the first four weeks post, and um, and then um, he left to go to uh, Rocket Man. So um, it was just me, um, which uh, people say, oh, that must have been just a terrible, crazy, brutal experience. Like, no, it was great. <laughs> it was just me. Was, you know, I like being left alone, you know. Uh, and, and, of course, the producer, Graham King, and his partner was basically a little trio. And Graham King was in uh, L.A. at the time. And he would come to London every few weeks and check out what I was doing. And um, um, so it was basically because it was a well-cast film. I wasn't dealt some bad cards. Right, exactly. When I saw the first dailies come in, I was like, thank God um, these guys have a chemistry, and now I can mold clay. I can make a great film and not worry about a problem the whole time. I mean, there's enough problems in any film. It had its problems. Every film does. But I, I could concentrate on those and not uh, something that I could never improve, So, or to a degree where it's going to be uh, cripple the film. Um, and, of course, the hardest part is when, if there's no director, it's in the ev- inevitable part where you're battling – or um, having diplomatic discussions with the studio, you yes, know, which is which is every film. So I'm not going to throw anyone. And did fuck. the studio? Well, we, you know, you always have disagreements. Sure. You have different points of view, and um, they were getting sold to Disney at that time. They were distracted. Yeah, and there was that crazy thing. And this was a shot in the arm, actually, for people uh, at Fox because um, all that was going on. But um, yeah, you have your test screenings, and you have your postmortems, and discuss. You know, everyone has an agenda based on you know what three people said in the audience, and that stuff is is hard because I tell people when they're getting into filmmaking, especially film editors, you know, especially film editors who may have more clout than just being a clock in, clock out guy and an avid, because every film editor is different in terms of the power they have with their particular director or whatever. Um, if you're one of those guys who's going to be the hands-on kind of editor, a lot of your job is not editing. It's 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 it battles. It's finding diplomacy, cre- creative, yeah, creative ways to get what you want, you know. And it's it's um I won't say it's a war because because it was never uh, animosity, but it still does feel like a war because you're trying to barter, for all, and you're trying to desperately protect something that you feel is the right thing to do. And um, like the producer Borat says, when, when when we finished the film, we walked away with ninety percent of what we wanted. Wow, you know, and that's pretty good. <laughs> that's so, but you know, because but that's what you but, but you never get everything you want. You sure. know, you mentioned that there wasn't earlier. Uh, you mentioned there wasn't an original score. Um, was that the plan from the beginning, or no. did you make that decision, or who? I made the decision, um, and I could see on Graham King, the producer's face, that he pretty much saw it that way too. Because when we talked about score, I could I could judge that he he knew the writing on the wall as much as I did. Um, whereas uh, you know, three quarters of the way through the process, I I was like, this is just going to really date the film if I put film music in here. And I'm talking, <laughs> I'm saying that as a film composer, you know, because uh, um, as the filmmaker, I'm like. I want this film to be timeless and and not feel dated later and also just be pure, you know, with Queen's music. So I had all this, the stems, the different tracks of the music. So I would take out Freddie's vocal, like when he goes to the, the doctor to get his diagnosis. I used um, a song of theirs and took out Freddie's vocal and used the orchestral tracks as the score. How cool. You had the stems of all the Queen's. Oh, yeah, yeah, That's yeah. That's great. So I was wondering about that. Did you remix some of the Queen? Yeah, material? I did my own remixing in the Avid, but then we did a much more refined version of the final dub because I, I would just ask for, like, give me drums, you know, give me um, uh, guitar, bass, and vocal. That's all I want right now. Did you ask Brian May or is there an yeah, engineer yeah. that they had? His, his that, engineers. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and so then when we went to the final dub, they had like billions of splits for all these d- different tracks and yep. so forth. But and so then I would use opera in a lot of the scenes where that would have been score. Um, but mm. Freddie Mercury used to listen to a lot of opera. Yeah. Mm. So um, and it just again it made the film uh, more tasteful. There's also a scene where he breaks up with Mary, and on the TV set is Who Wants to? Li- I'm sorry, uh, Love of My Life. Yes. And I I very carefully timed out the background. In the, on that TV to what was going on between the two of them. And it was... Scores. Yeah. And it's it, it was way more emotional and devastating than any score could ever do. Um, in fact, ironically, Brian May had suggested that we score that scene. I was like... As I was the one saying, no, because it'll, 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 it'll again, it'll make it feel schmaltzy. You know? how, how much did say did Brian May and, and the Queen members have in this? I know that they were producers on the film and they kind of signed off on, yeah. on making it, but were they in the room with you on a lot of this stuff? Not a lot. They, they would come in maybe every couple months, really, just to see basically the musical sequences and how I maybe butchered. <laughs> I, had to, I had to cut down the songs. Sure. Inevitably, I had to. Um, so I was always terrified of Brian May coming in and freaking out about where I cut. But um, So I would try to be as invisible as I could. Inevitably, I joke, it's true, that a lot of the fluff would be inevitably in a Brian May solo. Uh, and so... He'd get a little depressed, like, well, can you put back a couple bars, you know? And, and, you know, if you put a little more there, maybe you could take it out over here. I'm like, okay, I'd fine, you know. But, um, but, uh, that was really the extent of, um, of our interaction was really just these musical sequences that I created, you know. Um, and then they, they, uh, were at the final dub uh, of the film a lot. Wow. That's yeah. so dangerous because, um, the yeah. band members could say, oh, yes. And if they were cooperative and supportive, yeah. that's a gift. And there was a learning curve, um, especially Brian May being a physicist was, was, was fixated with the Atmos and the surrounds and, and the little computer that showed the dot and where you were focusing the sound and so forth. So we spent a lot of time, um, that we normally would not have spent kind of going through stuff like that. We collectively spent, Almost two days, and I'm not kidding you, on the Fox logo because Brian May did a, a, mm. a nod to the Fox music with electric guitars, and um, it's on the soundtrack. Very cool. Oh, was it? Yeah, yeah. But we, he was so fascinated with the surrounds and the Atmos that we spent forever doing different panning and all this stuff. And we're sitting there going, "Oh my God, we're never going to get this dub done." We're like spending two days on the Fox logo, you know. <laughs> and then then add the Fox logo. Then what do you do with the new Regency logo? So we're like, "Well, we can have an audience, you know, uh, applauding." Then we can have Freddie say something. So then we, what was Freddie going to say? So we took the "Hey, hey, hey" thing, you know. But that took forever, you know. Um, Did these decisions rest on you? Because without a director in the room, yeah. who were they turning to to say, we like it, we don't like it? Yeah, it's basically um, – it's not unusual for the editor to direct the the music – I'm sorry, the uh, final sound mix. The, but, the, uh, the, but the director will come in every couple days and make sure. notes and so forth. But um, – yeah, it was just it was just me doing that. I can't tell you something uncanny, and you might have remembered this from days gone by. When I was at Fox, the one sacred rule was the Fox logo does not get yes, fucked with. Yes, I remember that because of X-Men 2. 
X-Men 2, exactly I did, right. I did this really cool thing over the Fox logo, and the orchestra clapped, and they, they loved it, and we were all excited, and then all the, all the memos went, went out. They fanned out in Fox, and we had to remove it. So in Dates Future Past, what, 10 years later, I did it again, but this time I put it in the Avid from the very start from when we showed the studio. And so Emma over there, she got used to it, and she loved it, so then that got it in. So um, we got to, I got to molest the Fox logo there, and um, so... That's good. I know the, the one one thing that broke it through, because a lot of people on Speed 2, I think, Jan DeBont had this kind of... Kind of electronic thing that came out after it. Yeah. And, you know, suits in the big building said, no. Yeah. And so <laughs> the one that broke through was on the Simpsons movie. Jim Brooks came in and had an idea of going... <laughs> you know, there's a Simpsons character in the O of 20th Century Fox. It's like Nelson or something. I didn't even know that. <laughs> so, yeah, of course, I had to go to the big guys and go, you know, I, I, who wants to tell Jim Brooks? And the chairman of the studio said, there's actually a asterisk next to our rule. You can't fuck with the Fox logo. If you make a billion dollars for the studio, which the Simpsons have. Yeah. You can't. Right. You have a little right. power there. Right. Yeah. So, right, right. Uh, but from then on, it, actually, they've allowed it and they, and it, yeah, you know, electric guitar thing. Yeah, and, and no one's going to argue with Brian May if he really wants to do something because you know they, they you know they spent ten years developing this with Graham King. The uh, was it that director. long? Yeah, I didn't and, realize that the yeah. picture had been going that long. So and they uh, you know obviously the film couldn't happen without them and their blessing. So if they wanted something, they were going to get it. They didn't ever ask for anything, but um, that was something that Brian May would would have absolutely would, would have been furious had we not used it. You know, and of course it, it made sense to do it. It was like, How brilliant. joyful for them to spend ten years on a project. Get it cast, be through everything that they went through, and have it. Has it crossed a billion dollars? Almost, yeah. It's insane. It's, uh, yeah. I, I always felt, and I'm, I'm Mr. Glass half empty, as you know. I always feel that everything bad's going to happen before the good happens because I want to be pleasantly surprised by the good and not depressed by the good thing that I thought was going to happen. So that's just the way I see life. But, but I always knew this film, like I said, when I got dealt the first dailies and knew the cast was going to work. I always felt it was going to be successful, but not not this successful. When I first saw Rami with his hair short and the mustache, it was like transformed. I was like, "Oh my god, I don't even <laughs> recognize him anymore. He is Freddie Mercury yeah, now." Pretty, pretty. Amazing, it was yeah. it was intense. Um, Want to ask you about how the director change affected your editing and there's obviously the the viral video of the, uh, yeah. the patio well, I scene i would love to talk about that <laughs> yeah. one um but in like, fact i went to fox the other day okay and had them fire up the avid and all the media because i wanted that scene the way i'd originally cut it huh so someday i'm gonna do a fucking dissertation and show here's how i cut it originally and then here's what happens when too many cooks get in the kitchen and are so paranoid the, about pace the edit so. in the film is not yours no, it's mine, but I mean, it was mine after a uh. tremendous amount of notes and, and pressure to cut down, cut down, cut down. Here's what happened. Basically, what happened. Um, what was the first part of the question? Because we're like focusing on this already. Oh, just, <laughs> just when, you, when you're editing and the director oh, oh, changes, yeah. no, see, was that's there a reshoot? Th that's and... a misconception about, about that particular scene being affected because of uh, changing directors. Um, that all, is, all, all misquoted. The, um, the original scene where they meet John Reed was done uh, in a studio because um, the story was 
one way. Uh, we I flipped around the concerts. So the Japan concert and the tour of USA used to be in different order. <laughs> so when they met John Reed, um, all the dialogue didn't make any sense. And so we had to reshoot that scene. That's the only reason. Wow. And we thought, well, let's go outside for a change. So we shot it at a pub. Um, and so it was a whole new scene. But it, so, so the editing that scene, nothing to do with a new director. Um, what happened was, is is typical in films, um, studios are usually just petrified of getting through the first act. We've got to get through everything really fast, you know. And so, um, and yet this film, every single test screening, the uh, audience was, was, was wanting more. That was their notes across the board. We want more, we want more, we want more. So we actually did... I had this idea of him sitting at a bus stop, so we shot that. Um, and I, I, I said that, you know, there needs to be a bump in the road for the band, the classic thing where, oh, shucks, we're, we, we're not, we're on this high, and then we're not going to make it, and then they make it. That's, mm-hmm. you know, you have to do that. So we shot the scene of the band breaking, breaking down. That's, that's their dip in the road, literally. I mean, right. but that was so brief, you know, I wanted it to be protracted. But having said so, so we did. So we shot those new things, but because they were new things, now there was this paranoia that the first act was getting too long. Basically, so the idea was let's just make let's just blow through meeting John Reed and make it almost like a montage, you know. So I took the original version that I cut and all the nuggets and the cool things in it we wanted to preserve. You know, Graham and and his producing partner Dennis O'Sullivan were like, we want to maintain what the scene was. So I kept hacking it down, hacking it down faster, 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 cut, cut things out of it. But, you know, if there's a look or something, you want to keep it in there. So what happens is by trying to keep all the old stuff in but having the scene be half the length, it made it too fast. And um, uh, at the 11th hour, I went back and I fattened up the van scene and um, some stuff at the bus stop so, I, so we, it could breathe a little more. But I never got to that i myself just was not seeing it as it as mm. it was so fast um but what killed me about the focus on this one scene <laughs> is there is another 110 minutes or whatever of of movie there you know oh that yeah i'm gonna pat myself on the back for show them your creating. oscar yeah you know, right. it's like you know and it's like and i'm not i sound defensive but you know i was nominated by my peers yes that who take editing very seriously and they know uh, what I was doing there, you know. Anyway, but um, but wasn't that whole kerfuffle about the scene one dude online? Who yeah, did that who thing? gives this like very intelligent sounding uh, dissertation, and, and, and his <laughs> voice is very authoritative, and it sounds like he is the editing authority on the, the universe, what you know. The and it's like I'm like you know, and but the most depressing thing is like five hundred thousand people watch that freaking video, you know. Um, so oh, someday, the world of the internet. I'm gonna do my own video. Please do. Even though I don't want to uncover this thing, all though it's like one way to let it go, you know. But um, it it upsets me because I think we're very instructive to people who who fell for the the brilliance of his of his analysis to show them no, this is the way this the scene was, and here's what happens on a film, you know. Um, but um, and I and I I won't not blame. I mean, I won't take blame completely away from myself because I should have gone back into that scene and put my foot down and like I did on throughout that film. Um, many places I could tell you the wars that happened on every scene of that film. There was a war, of course, there always is, and defending it, and defending, and defending, it, and keeping it, and keeping the integrity of that scene, and keeping it uh, not artificially sped up. And that was the one I missed. I think the irony of all of it is. I'm going to say, as somebody who's seen, I'm going to say a billion movies, maybe two billion <laughs> movies, both professionally. And I didn't even know there was an issue. I, yeah, same. you know, the funny thing is, is when you're in a the theater, 
you don't notice it. Not at all. But when I showed it to my friends in my little screening room here, I was like, holy fuck. It's amazing. It's a different experience in a theater, as you know. And uh, and um, for some reason, it, you just are so sucked into it in the yeah, theater. You don't course. notice that um, that rapid fire thing. Um, but I, I'm also going to say one thing as well. It, film editors, a good film editor, it's not just about the, the, the snazzy shit they're doing in the movie. A film editor's job is to step back the macro view of a film, of course, and tell the story. That's a huge. That's that's their main task. And so, a lot of people don't give that credit for shaping the life of a person in two hours, yeah, yeah. and trying to make those decisions. And because you know, the film could have been four hours long, you know. And so, making those painful decisions, of how to keep it emotional, was my was my my bottom line. Was the film has to be emotional. That's it. That's you know. I think the answer to whoever that dude is who posted the thing, a billion dollars. Uh, how bad could this scene have been, or how important was it? it <laughs> well, might have been... in his defense, there are some pretty bad films that make a billion dollars. <laughs> <laughs> you might have a point. Did you guys the the final scene? Did you? I thought I heard you say in a previous interview that that was the first thing you guys put together uh not put together it was the first thing we shot okay and so I I, I, wow. I got to work on it for a year and that was the thing that kept me up at night literally for a year um you know I mean if you've, you've, you've even if I got up to go pee in the middle of the night I was thinking about live aid it's live aid live aid live aid <laughs> because because um I always say this it was the death star sequence for Bohemian Rhapsody where if it yeah. didn't work the film would be a disaster so um obviously it took many iterations that uh, to to create that sequence and conceive of it because uh you know, all the crowd and, and all any shot off the stage is all CGI. So I, I would design those those shots. Um, and was it and, was it put together just like the broadcast? Because I went back and watched it. It was almost shot for shot. No, like, no, well, no, not really. I mean, there are shots that look like the broadcast. But in terms of uh, how it's presented, I think it's completely different. I mean, this is more you're on the fly in the wall and you're there. In different, in seeing it in a different way than you would have um, watching a live aid video. Otherwise, why do it? Because um, I had the emotional components of the story. I had Mary off stage. I had um, you know uh, Jim, right. Jim Hutton and um, and his manager and so forth. And uh, and um, so so there was that. And also the, to me the, the 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 evolution of that sequence is how uh, building the emotion between Freddie and his audience. You know, yeah. So, it's actually, it's not documentary style it's really an emotional moment with some documentary elements right infused that are actually artificial because you had to create yeah them. and it was ballsy to basically that was the idea of the film end with live aid roll credits and i'm like fuck <laughs> we are screwed if it yeah. doesn't if it's not exhausting in uh, um, a good way yeah and you and so it has to be just the right length where you're just you're you're spent but not too long where you're spent but then you want it to be over so it's it's just uh it was a hard thing and um and then of course the full Live Aid I also did, um, which was released on the DVD or the download, whatever. It's the full 20-minute set, and it's fantastic because uh, the painful thing was a lot of the amazing um, uh, Malik, uh, Freddy gyrations and, and stuff um, was, was cut out. Um, oh, shoot. And um, so uh, – but, but they spent like a million bucks doing new crowd shots and so forth to create the full version for the DVD. Oh, wow. So, I didn't even know that. Well, yeah, go watch well, that. You should watch it. it. It's, it's great. That sounds cool. Because Crazy Little Thing was a whole song I cut out and mm. I cut out half of, um, of uh, Radio Gaga. So yeah. I think um, just – I mean it's been really – amazing to hear all this about bohemian rhapsody and we never got a chance to talk about i mean you and i worked on a couple fantastic fours right and a couple x-men but also uh -oh. I, I realized on the way here yeah 
that we wrote a song together. Yes, we did. And um, hide and seek, hide and seek, which I <laughs> I can't. You had a friend who sang it. Yes, Debbie Lurie. Oh, Debbie Lurie's the singer. Great, yeah, yeah, yeah. wonderful composer. This is Debbie Lurie. Yes. No, but, no, no. That's on Debbie. What? Ha- uh, this is the jazzy version, the I, end credit thing. That, that I cannot remember the story. There was the song. there. What, what happened is I wrote like three. So or we were four doing diff- a picture hide and seek. Yes, and um, I wrote like three or four themes, and everyone would be sort of like it was sort of the voting that the group would come in, including you and a couple other executives, and we'd be like, let's vote for the best theme, you know. So, but you listened to the one theme, and you were, and you were like. I- I'm hearing lyrics. I'm hearing lyrics to that. And I'm like, what? You know, and so um, you wrote these lyrics and um, and uh, they, I don't know if they were using the end titles or not, but I bet I d- definitely used them on the album. Um, I think so. The two yeah. versions of the song. Yeah. Um, it's one of my favorite themes I've written. Um, that was the jazzed up version, but um, there's actually a more orchestral version right. with the voice. And that, was, just that was Debbie me. Lurie. Yeah. And that was whatever era that was, that was the kind of mania for we have to have a single from the movie. And right. We have to have, and so the jazzed up version was, oh, what was the guy's name? Uh, Lior Rosner. Thank you. Yeah. Who I said, we can't use the film version, which is kind of ethereal serial. We need right. to do a kind of... Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Leor did it, and um, it charted not. And uh, but I have the great good fortune of saying we co-wrote a song. Yeah, yeah. And that's Debbie's. Yeah, she. She. That's right. It was. Well, if you listen to the album, yeah. um, the one that's in the opening title sequence, which is on the album, with that, that's Debbie singing. I always know what I liked about the hide and seek song and the idea, and what probably occurred to me when we're hearing it, is that your theme actually made me think of, and now I'm remembering all this is probably, I don't know how many years ago, Clute. It Mm, made me think of the movie Clute that had an ethereal voice Uh as part of the score. Yeah. Uh, whatever that yeah, yeah. <laughs> that'll be a good drop from now on there was a woman's voice every time Jane Fonda was kind of in trouble and this theme made me think a little bit of it and so hide and seek I can't it was Robert De Niro yeah and the Dakota Fanning yeah, yeah. in the our precious. youth yes <laughs> the precious <laughs> John Ottman what a pleasure to be in hey we never got the name of John's studio. We always oh, yeah. identify. We always Uh-oh. say we're broadcasting live from. Are you about to name it for the first time? Wow. Ottman Sound. Uh, the Koi Pond. The Koi Pond. Oh. I like that. <laughs> there's, a there, koi, there's a Koi Pond outside the window. You, here. you literally, no joke, you cross a moat with a bridge. <laughs> it's like a modern castle. There's tortoises or turtles. Are turtles. They, they're turtles. turtles. And Koi. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> broadcasting live from the Koi Pond. <laughs> From the Koi Castle. John, what a pleasure. John, to thanks go for coming on the show. See you. It's great to see you. Really again. a treat. And uh, anything we should be looking forward to coming up? No, I mean, uh, I'm just Taking in a break? Weird, weird transition period of uh, it's either shit or get off the pot in terms of directing something, So, uh, but I don't want to do nice. something hasty. So I'm in the position where I can just take my time and try to find the We're right We're holding project. our breath. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us, John. Really uh, appreciate reminder it. Reminder to our listeners, follow us on Twitter at ScoreThePodcast, and be sure to rate, like, subscribe, follow, all that good stuff on Apple Podcasts and or wherever hug. you get your podcasts. Take it away, Robert. You know, you can rate, you can subscribe, you can also send a little emoji with a kiss. We like that. Yeah. It says, 